podcast this week, you don't have to be Albert Einstein to figure out that we're delighted to be joined by Jeffrey Rush, the star of Genius, in which he plays Albert Einstein. Plus, usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast. I would never want to watch a Jason Statham movie with John Fergo. Every five minutes, where's the cue ball going? It would get old really fast. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast, brought to you by Mustard. .co.uk, those wonderful chaps who make car insurance comparison so much easier than it is with other things that do that. That'll do. <laughs> Couple of bits of housekeeping before we get into it this week. Uh, we're, we have somehow, I don't know how, well, I do know how because lots of you have voted. Uh, we're in the final 20 for the Listener's Choice category at the uh, British Podcast Awards which take place uh, next Saturday the April 29th Lee April 29th uh, thanks so much to all of those who've voted for us thus far uh, and if you've come this far then perhaps you're willing to go a little further because uh, we'd love to be in the final one we know it is unlikely because we're up against some incredible podcasts giving an idea of some of the uh, the other uh, finalists in the final 20 Atletico Mints which is a the great Bob Mortimer foot, uh, podcast football related kind of uh, Distraction Pieces podcast with Scroopius Pip Dumpty Dum a show about the Archers by its fans uh, Football Weekly The Guardian Kermode and Mayo's Film Review what's that? anyone know what that is? ever heard of that? No, just Never a heard of him. bunch of blokes wittering on about entertainment. Hello to Jason Isaacs. Uh, my dad wrote a porno. That's a big on the Anfield Rap podcast. Uh, it's really good stuff. Uh, so if we somehow manage to triumph over that a uh, little lot, that'd be amazing. Uh, and it would all be down to you guys, our, our wonderful listener. Uh, so if you haven't voted yet and you love, like, or even just have a mild tolerance built up over the last five years for what we do, please vote at uh, www forward slash I'll do it full I'll do I'll do it I'll do it full Brian Butterfield <laughs> W double W dot British Podcast Awards dot com forward slash vote. There we go. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, and also other bit of housekeeping last week I said we might have Warren Beatty on the show. Um and we do but just not this one because uh, I spoke to the legendary bloke himself earlier this week it went so darn well and for so darn long that we've turned it into an interview special that should be out right about now as well if we don't kill John Nugent with the editing uh, so please do listen to that as well if you would thank you so much indeed housekeeping done right okay uh, this week I'm joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning first up our quiet brooding George Harrison looky likey it's John Nugent hello that's it that's your intro this week Okay. I haven't let through hoops or anything to, to do it. Sorry. That's, that's fine. That's it. I thought you might mention The Rock, but that's fine. I didn't want to mention The Rock because it, it went a bit wrong, didn't it, with The Rock? <sighs> I mean, you, you came out last week, you flew your, your flag for The Rock, you said you were The Rock's number one guy. And then what did he do? He retweeted Ali Plum. Ali Plum, yes. <sighs> yeah. Oh, formerly of this parish and now uh, big film cheese over at Radio 1. <clears throat> yeah, uh, actually, he uh, retweeted Ali twice. Twice? Which is double the pain. Did he tweet Ali and then did Ali retweet him? Or, you know, it's it's all very... But he definitely tweeted. He did a tweet saying, Hey, Ali Plum, you're my man. Or something along yeah, those lines. And he did another one last night. To another Ali. one last night? He retweeted night. Ali last night. Look. Right, that's it. Right. <laughs> I know this because Ali keeps messaging me to tell me. I'm like, <laughs> I, I'm like, I know, I know. But no, I mean, I, you know, I, I dimly remember the, the high that I felt. The euphoria. <laughs> and so I don't envy him. Um, this is so weird because I'm the actually uh, only person in this room who's actually worked with The Rock, and uh, by that I mean I hosted followed a, him. I hosted a press conference for uh, GI Joe too, so I have worked with The Rock <laughs> in a professional capacity. You are the pebble, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and yet he has never tweeted me. No, 
What's that about? Look, I'm not. I'm not going to call Ali Plum a candy ass. That's that's <laughs> not what I'm going to do. A fight between you and Ali Plum would be the most ineffectual thing. It would be two very two thin, very people. weedy, weedy men. Yeah, yes. I, mean, I wouldn't say you're weedy. I'd say both of you are possessed of a wary strength. <laughs> we can we can run fast. You're rangy. Ray- <laughs> that's the word. Both of you have got a very long reach. This, so, is, yes. uh, this is unrelated completely, but I'm reading Alec Baldwin's. Uh, this is Nick Desemlian, by the way. This is Nick Desemlian. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do, do mind trick? We are a professional podcast. We're up for the <laughs> British <Top> podcast. 20 <laughs> in the world. Five years in, and we still haven't got the hang of introducing people before they speak. Uh, anyways, our Jurassic World loving Ringo Starr and Lookalike Nick Desemlian. How are you? <laughs> Peace and love. Peace and love, Peace Chris. And love. Peace, Peace and, and love. love. Love it, love it. So I'm reading uh, Alec Baldwin's. Um, Memoirs at the moment, which has a really boring title. Nevertheless, really, it's called. It's not bold winning or anything like that. It should be. It should, like, it should be chapters of a close. Always be. <laughs> there's something there. Yeah. Always be reading. ABR. <laughs> um, but anyway, it's got a boring title, but the book itself is pretty spicy uh-huh. um, because it's basically a list of insults aimed at everyone <laughs> does, that Alec Baldwin has ever had. It's, it's like, does it's, every it's, chapter end with "Needless to say, I had the last laugh." <laughs> It might as well have. But he gets angry about everyone. He gets angry about Oliver Stone. He gets angry about De Niro at one point. Is it essentially Father Ted's acceptance speech for Golden Cleric? Let's move on to twats. But he's furious. But he writes... Just our description of you, John, just reminded me of his description of Harrison Ford. Uh, He has a little section on Harrison Ford. And Alec Baldwin refers to him as a little man, short, scrawny and wiry whose soft voice sounds as if it's coming from behind a door. Which is just an amazing (laughs) takedown. That's a great... I love that line about the voice, but he's um, he's pretty pissed off with Harrison Ford still Why? For, for taking Jack Ryan off him. Oh, right. Apparently, he tells the story that... Um, I, don't think Harris, we, I don't think Harrison Ford... Well, he tells, he tells this story. He says that Harrison Ford... Um, there was a meeting with Harrison Ford to take the role of Jack Ryan for Patriot Games. Obviously, Baldwin had played the role in Hunt for Red October. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Somebody said to Harrison Ford, well, Alec Baldwin is still kind of attached. And he went, I don't give a fuck. And then Baldwin heard about that. And so that's kicked off this Whoa. this rivalry, which this beef. You got forded. <laughs> yeah. Mm. There's that. There's that. You forgot what you were talking about. No, I just, no. that was the story. I was going to say, so it was you and Ali next week. We will get Ali, you know, he hasn't, he hasn't been able to do the podcast since he, since he moved on. But maybe we'll get him in just to have a, a fight, an audio fight between the two of you. An audio fight. Yeah. Judged by The Rock himself. That would be amazing. Do <laughs> you think I, it would be like The Rock versus Statham in Fast and Furious 7? I think you guys will definitely team up in the eighth movie about you. <laughs> do, do you think? Yeah, when you realise you're being manipulated by a really evil, devious type, me, essentially. Right. Just trying to manoeuvre you both into a position. <laughs> they call him Cypher Hewitt. Yeah. Uh, here is our question, because that wasn't the question. Here's the question that we were going to tackle this week, and this uh, fight email is from uh, Madava Smullin from Florida. Um, and the question is... What's the funniest moment in a movie that leaves you helpless with laughter no matter how many times you watch it? Interesting. Mm. Very really interesting. Good question. I feel, really like, good question. I feel like there's uh, some subtext to this question, really, which is uh, which films can you re-watch, which comedy movies can you re-watch and they're still funny? Because once you've seen a, a joke, it sort of loses its power a little bit. I don't know if bit. that's true. I don't know if that's true. Well, it depends on the joke, doesn't it? If it's a good joke... Or if it's a good scene or something, yep. if there's a familiarity to it, then it, it can grow. Well, the question is about specific moments. So yep. it's moments in movies that still make you laugh. 
yeah. even after you've seen the film five or six times. Um, so yeah, I don't. Know, I have really specific memories of of seeing certain things at the cinema that just destroyed me. And one of them is Austin Powers, the opening sequence where he's dancing down the um, dance. This is the first Austin Powers film where he's dancing down the street mm-hmm. in London. And specifically the bit where the Bobby, they all stop dancing and this, this British Bobby walks up to them <laughs> and then just joins in and starts busting moves. And yes. I just remember that absolutely killing me. Like, I don't think I've ever laughed as hard. Because nobody had seen Austin Powers before. And so you, you didn't know what the hell was going on at that point. But great yeah. character. Great, great, great character. Great, 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 great character there from the, uh, the British mm. Bobby, uh, played, of course, by uh, Dustin Gran- granular um, no I haven't IMDb that uh, I love that I love that I love Austin Powers yeah these these are uh, these are sometimes are, there's comedies are like just a warm hug that mm. you want to return to constantly and uh, I'm always banging on this podcast about Top Secret uh, which in my opinion is the best soccer Abraham soccer movie uh, and there are just so many sequences in that that still to this day uh, destroy me and and yes Podcast drinking game fans, my wife, uh, we we love it. The, What's uh, your favourite? What's the bit in Top Secret that kills you? Um, almost everything with Deja Vu, uh, who's this amazing character played by Jim Carter. He's a member of the French Resistance in mid nineteen sixties East Germany. <laughs> <laughs> of course he is. <laughs> Uh, Deja Vu is one of the great comedy idiots, and almost everything he does is absolutely amazing. Uh, and the moment the French Resistance hit <laughs> the film, it, it goes up a notch. It's already insane. But you have these incredible visual gags. Uh, there's this amazing joke where uh, <laughs> we're on a train uh, with uh, Fal Kilmer. First movie, Fal Kilmer's first movie. Good way to start. Uh, and we're on a train with him and his manager. He's playing Nick Rivers. He's going to uh, East Germany to play in a con- uh, festival. And the train begins to pull away from the station. And then the camera pulls out to reveal that the train is staying still but it's the station that's moving it is one of the great visual gags in history but the bit that absolutely destroys me there's a character called Duquois and <laughs> no actually this is Deja Vu sorry my mistake but it, one, my favourite moment is a Deja Vu moment it's, it's amazing uh, where he, he sits down Nick has had some bad bad, bad news uh, can you you know you can probably relate with this Nick you're, you're Nick and you've had some you've, you've, I'm having you've some had bad news, news right now right, okay, I'm here we go. this podcast so uh Nick's had some bad news and Deja Vu sits him down and goes you know Nick life is filled with its little miseries each of us must learn to deal with adversity in a mature and adult manner <laughs> and then he sneezes into his hand and he looks at the contents of his hand and he goes ah! and he runs and he leaps out of a window and that is for me the pinnacle of humour thank you very much indeed good night bye bye it often is the dumbest stuff like staying on yeah. a Zucker Abrams vibe uh, I am a huge uh, fan of Naked Gun 2.5 oh, specifically 2.5 it's. I. I think it's superior to the first. I don't care what anyone. You're an says. idiot. It's a, great film. it's a great film. It's a great film. film. Yeah. But it's the scene that the scene that always slays me is Professor Meinheimer, who's just a great character played by by <laughs> great Rick, name. Richard Griffith, <laughs> Professor Meinheimer, and, yeah. and and he's got that amazing doppelganger with. Um, is it is it the bit where um, he meets Frank Drebin for the first time and the, Meinheimer's in a wheelchair? And <laughs> he just don't get up. He just don't get up. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's when he's tied up. He's he he and Drebin are tied up, and Drebin is trying to um, oh, yeah. he's trying to get through the ropes binding his hands, and so he keeps <laughs> he keeps rubbing them on this thing. Uh, this just stuff falling on Meinheimer's head but it's just the stuff that falls on it it's like a bowling ball and then it's some oil yeah. and then it's and some feathers, feathers yeah. and then it's an anvil and I, I don't know why that makes me laugh so much it's just the thought of those four items being kept on top of a filing cabinet 
in a, in a warehouse. <laughs> just, I love that scene. It's true that the slapstick stuff. I, I think it it really it, there's something about it that's quite primal, isn't there? That really just speaks to you. Like you can keep watching it, and it's still I, the first Naked Gun. Uh, I remember watching it as a kid, and my face was, you know, exploding with laughter. The the, the scene that. I will never forget is is when he breaks into Ludwig's apartment trying to look for evidence and it's just a succession of the most juvenile slapstick humour like yeah. he, he first there's the bingo moment bingo and then where he holds up a bingo card yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and then uh, he finally finds the, the piece of evidence he's looking for sets it on fire <laughs> the apartment sets on fire then a self piano playing yeah. self playing piano just starts playing uh, when he's trying to be you know quite stealthily and then there's that fantastic bit where he climbs outside of the building and he grabs onto <laughs> he grabs onto these statues and then he grabs onto a real woman's um uh, um, 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 oh, um areas yes chest yeah and the, the, I watched the scene this morning that they, they, they actually have the ogre sound effect <laughs> that's how juvenile it is Don't, doesn't he end up hanging onto a statue's uh, um, yes member yes yes member yes and then and then and then pulls staggering into the room and he yeah it's it's an amazing amazing that whole sequence is just those are funny guys and I remember crying with I'm a Leslie Nielsen fanboy and uh, I remember going paying, paying money to see Spy Hard which is one of his worst, very worst films, and that's saying something. Um, I was with my friends Matt and Chris Johnson, and we went to the Gerald's Cross Odeon, and I've got really specific memories of Spy Hard destroying me the first 10 minutes. The rest of it was awful. But um, it starts with Weird Al Yankovic doing a, a spoof Bond song, where it's just the silhouette yeah, yeah. of Weird Al Yankovic with various things going on. I rem- the only thing I remember from that film is uh, uh, Leslie Nielsen parachuting down from a plane and he's got like a full bottle of whiskey that he just pours while he's parachuting I thought that was Mr. That was T's funny. in it as well I oh, mean yeah. it, it really is a terrible film but um, mm. it's got yeah. some gold it's got some gold yeah those, those films are my comfort food mm. you know when you when you just you feel a little bit down you maybe look at the state of modern parody modern spoofs and you just stick them on and they're just amazing because they're, they're solid solid jokes and people actually taking time to come up with jokes and it's not just simply uh, you know interior restaurant day and now they improvise for five minutes it's, it's not that and I go to Lewis Films more than I go to Monty Python or the Marx Brothers or anything like that uh, yeah. I just I just love them so much they're kind of like a blizzard of jokes where they're just jokes because constantly hitting you and then there are other films that have one joke that's stretched out so long that that in itself just keeps you laughing and then you stop laughing and then you start laughing again mm, mm. I always think of the scene in Spinal Tap where Derek Smalls gets trapped inside a pod on stage <laughs> and they play the entire song but Derek Smalls is trying to get out of the pod and then the guy with the welding torch comes along like <laughs> guy with a hammer and he's just there he keeps coming back to him and then just as he gets out the rest of the band go back into their pods <laughs> he can't get back in and it's just it's about five minutes of screen time for one joke but yeah. it's so good I had I had one on my list from Spinal Tap. It's, it is a sort of often mentioned scene, but where they're trying to find the stage, uh, and they, they, Again, yeah, same, they can't same find kind it, of and thing, they, yeah. they, they, that sort of drags out. And I just love this naive, like the <laughs> impotent, like joy of trying to find this, like rock and roll, come on! <laughs> and then they just come across the stagehand who just gave them directions, like yeah, they, they meet like a janitor. Yeah, so they're, yeah like, they're right. so far off the track. It's like, <laughs> a janitor who barely knows there's a stage anywhere in the area and they, they come around the block and go back to them that's a great scene hello Cleveland yeah, yeah. 
anything with Derek Smalls, who, who describes himself as, uh, he says, he describes one member of the band as fire, another one as ice, and he describes himself as lukewarm water. And, uh, the great Harry Shearer. Um, but you're right, the jokes that, are, the jokes that uh, go on so long that they become unfunny yes. and then go on longer so they become funny again are absolutely amazing. Uh, and the one that's springing to mind right now, and this is probably a really bad example, is Hot Rod. That's what I was uh, thinking. Where yeah. <laughs> the, the scene where uh, Andy Sandberg falls down the hill. <laughs> in the, in the, he's going on a training montage <coughs> in the mountains and he falls down this hill and it's very Simpsons inspired but he, he, all you see is him falling rolling, rolling, rolling it's about two minutes long the sequence of him hitting trees and falling down the mountain and screaming in pain and it doesn't it stops being funny and then it starts again yeah. it's absolutely amazing um, what's the Peter Berg uh, war film with Mark Wahlberg called Lone Survivor Lone Survivor that came out after Hot Rod and it's yeah. basically got the same scene yes. where someone falls down a hill and yeah. it's almost identical to the one in Hot Rod and it's, it's played, only about five seconds shorter <laughs> it's played much more seriously it's, as yeah well. but it's, yeah. Meant, it's meant to be taken seriously but yeah Hot Rod ruined that yeah. um, what else Borat Famously described by our own Dan Jolin as so funny it will bar- burst half the blood vessels in your face. Yeah, yeah. Which is the most upsetting description of comedy. <laughs> you just come out of Borat with your face covered in <laughs> blood everywhere. It's like the end of Carrie. Yeah. Um, Free Amigos, the scene where Steve Martin's up on the wall. We were just watching that earlier. Yeah. Steve Martin's up on the wall and yeah. trying to get Chevy Chase and Martin Short to look up by basically just yelling look look up in a funny voice but I think you just reminded me of of a scene it's not from a it's not from a film it's from a TV show and we watch this we watch this all the time you and I which is the bike chase from the Garth Marenghi's Dark Place episode The Apes of Wrath which uh, was the first thing I ever saw of Garth Marenghi you showed it to me one day you said you have to see this and I I I almost wept. I had to leave the room. I had to leave the room. I had. I remember this. I had to leave the room because I was laughing so hard. I thought I was going to die. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing. If you don't, if you haven't seen Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, only six episodes were ever made. Check it out. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, it's a kind of parody of terrible 1980s uh, American TV drama, but from a British horror author. Uh, it's it played by Matt Holness, uh, Matthew Holness, who's it's just absolutely extraordinary, and it, it kind of launched the careers of Richard Iwadi and Alice yeah. Lowe and Matt Berry, uh, and it's brilliant. And this episode, Noel Fielding plays um, some kind of I don't know what you describe him, some kind of evil ape creature. Yeah, that's, that's that's pretty much on the yeah. pissing into water coolers, and which is exactly turning. what he's going to do in Great British Bake Off. <laughs> he's he's miturating into water coolers around this hospital uh, that's on a portal to hell. Gavin and, and everyone who drinks it turns into an ape, and then uh, Garth Marenghi discovers his plan and chases him on a very small bike. Yeah. And I don't know why I can't figure out exactly why it makes me laugh so much, but. Yeah, I, I've probably seen that twenty times. Yeah, and it does a strange thing to me where I start overheating and like sweating. <laughs> I, it just—I don't know. It, yeah. it goes beyond laughing. It's, it's that just, sort of laughter just, that gets a bit uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Just physically has an effect on you me. Just don't feel it's so funny. Yeah, um, but it's—it's it's the shots of Richard Awadi in particular. They have these these very terrible effects shots of him mm. with a megaphone on a on a bike with motorbike sound effects. <clears throat> yeah, it's a great scene. It's an amazing scene from an amazing show to check it out. Uh, I don't think I can top top secret for me uh, in terms of films, but there, there are other things I really really love. Um, weirdly enough, the Coen Brothers is, is something that I always come back to as well. The Coen Brothers are amazing. Uh, I love not just jokes that go on forever and ever and ever, but sometimes the jokes are so quick that you you almost miss them. Uh, I may have talked about this in the podcast before, but there's an amazing moment in Raised in Arizona where Nick Cage gets punched by Holly Hunter, and he has his facial expression after being punched by her is one of the greatest things I've ever seen and it makes me laugh every single time. Uh, 
And I'm also going to mention a film that I think is much maligned in the Coen's filmography, which is Intolerable Cruelty, uh, which is decent for the first hour or so, and then turns uh, weirdly into this jet black dark comedy towards the uh, in the last half hour. And there's an amazing sequence where uh, George Clooney and his mate try to uh, hire an assassin called Wheezy Joe. And it's just a joke that slays me every single time. They <laughs> they go up to this big hulking guy who's going... <laughs> and they go, Hey, are you Wheezy Joe? <laughs> like, oh, yeah, figure it out, boys. Can I say one more? Yeah, of course you can. There's a character in a film that's not even a comedy, but he's, my, he's the character that makes me laugh the most. Um, of any movie and he is Milton Dammers um, played by Jeffrey Coombs in, in Peter Jackson's The Frighteners and I just cannot get and I've probably banged on about him on the podcast I don't before. think you have actually we had him on the podcast once we had Jeffrey Coombs on the podcast it was really exciting yeah, yeah. Um, that character is amazing because on paper that's just an FBI agent comes in to investigate and chase Michael J. Fox around that, that's all that character has to do mm. but he's so insane like he's like a complete loon yeah. on every level and everything he says is hilarious um, and my favourite line of his might be uh, Sheriff you are violating my territorial bubble um, you have to see it in context it's great it's, it's fantastic uh, there's a character on Billions series 2 <clears throat> season 2 happening right now uh, great great show if you haven't watched it check it out uh, there's a character in that who I think is based very strongly on Milton Dammers interesting yeah really anal guy same haircut not necessarily the same obsession with Hitler, but, you know, maybe that'll be held back for season three. But there you go. John, any more? I, I had one more Step Brothers, um, oh my God. which, you and know, I think we've talked about before, the rewatchability value of that film. You can come back to it again and again, and it, it somehow gets funnier. It wages like a, a fine wine. but the, the um, oh, Like a fine Kathleen wine mixer? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fucking Kathleen wine mixer. Uh, the sleepwalking scene for me is the is the big one. Like, I just... It just <laughs> it just kills me. Every time that one... They're just coming around... <laughs> I think it's just something about the, their sort of demented walk and that sort of... The way they get the cereal out. And it's like... <laughs> It's, it's something just so like base and perfect it speaks to me at a caveman level Richard Curtis revealed to us uh, when we interviewed him very recently uh, that Step Brothers is Paul Greengrass's favourite film yeah it's that and the Battle of Algiers that's, that's <laughs> it's my favourite double fact. bill just that's something to ask Paul Greengrass next yeah. time oh, alright come round my house we'll have a double bill <laughs> It's my Paul Greengrass impression, no, everybody. No, I'm at, I can't. I'm watching no, Step Brothers. No, I'm at. I've gone into Ray Winston. <laughs> Stay from me. Yeah, sleepwalking. Yeah, love it. Right, there we go. Uh, I've laughed so much. Meanwhile, the listeners at home are going, might food for the Anfield rap. <laughs> oh, shit. Which is a very good podcast, by the way. And I'm not just saying it because I appeared on it two weeks ago. Ha, 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 moonlighting. Uh, right, if you want to have your question read out in the Empire podcast, you can do so for a number of different ways uh, we are on Twitter yeah that's right Twitter as at Empire Magazine hashtag Empire Podcast we're on Facebook as Empire Magazine and we are of course on email as Mad of a Smullen discovered much to her joy uh, whenever uh, we read that question out uh, podcast at EmpireOnline.com is the address for that one right should we talk about some movie news yes now, let's do it should we start with um, <coughs> Star Wars Yes, of course. Massive Star Wars trailer dropped last week, and it was, of course, Star Wars Rebels Season 4. Hey, ah, there you go, there you go. 
This is the bit that people would be returning to. Yes. This is the funniest moment. That's it. This is the gold. <laughs> this is the award-winning gold. This will burst every blood vessel in your ears. <laughs> But that was that was a brilliant setup. Come on, I, I worked hard on that one. You went one way. The effort was clear. <laughs> yeah. The strain the prepared, was uh, prepared remarks. It was it was oh. a lot of work to listen to it. <laughs> Amazing! You dropped the shoulder. Off you went. Oh god! Oh, extraordinary. Uh, why? What happened? I haven't actually seen the Red Bulls trailer. Oh, I was, right. yeah, I, okay. The joke, of course, was that. <laughs> And it's always best to explain your jokes. Literally, uh, the day after we recorded the podcast last week, the first trailer for Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi, mm-hmm. arrived. Too much applause and excitement. Yeah, so it begins with uh, with Ray, mm-hmm. uh, and then we move on to Parker Junior. No, uh, then it, we starts, have... it starts very interestingly because it starts um, in almost the same way as the Force Awakens. <gasps> yes, which started with John Boyega going, <gasps> <gasps> and, but this one starts with Daisy Ridley going. <gasps> Nailed it. Yeah. Nailed it. Uh, which, I, which I liked. A little bit, of, uh, little bit yeah. of a callback. Yeah. And it's very much a teaser. So we don't really know anything else. I mean, we don't, you know, we, we, we get reacquainted briefly with uh, <coughs> the heroes of the last movie. So we see Rey and we see that she's being trained on Akto, which is the, uh, the, the, the island planet where uh, Luke Skywalker has uh, recused himself from the fight uh, and he's gone off and he's having a lovely holiday um, and uh, then along comes someone with a lightsaber to ruin it for him so he's like uh, so we see her we see um, we see Finn again but he's unconscious but we're, we're led to believe that John Boyega does not spend the entire movie recuperating he might be napping might have been napping. Uh, we see a mysterious new planet, planet called uh, Crate, with lots of new sort of skimmer fighter things that are like flying towards. Yeah, the red, the red, There's red dust behind them. Some mm-hmm. really interesting uh, uh, visuals in this. We see, of course, BB-8 and his uh, his big pal Poe Dameron uh, running towards Poe's uh, X-wing fighter, only for it to get blown up by something. What's that about? Uh, we see a brief glimpse of of uh, General Leia from behind, and of course, we get at the end of the uh, the, the trailer our first proper look at uh, Luke Skywalker's silhouette. But and he says that, crucially his line at the end, which uh, shocked everyone: "It's time for the Jedi to end." Mm. So. The Last Jedi could be instigated by Luke, theor- theoretically. Is that definitely Luke Skywalker speaking? I, I think that it was. was. I'm pretty sure that was <clears throat> Kylo Ren. No, it's Luke. It was Luke. Really? It yeah. was Luke. So it, huh. Luke wants the Jedi to end. Huh. That's, I mean, this is what is being implied, at least. Well, that's interesting, but we're kind of missing the big bombshell of the trailer, which is that there is a book, and we have talked on this podcast before about the fact there is no paper in the Star Wars universe. Oh, yeah. This trailer has got paper in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's got a uh, it's got a, a shot of um, what is known as the Journal of the Wills. Well, we think it might be the Journal of the Wills. We don't we don't know. I know. You know. I, I don't know. You don't know. I don't know. No, no, I don't we're, know. we're we're flying blind here. But um, uh, yeah, that's very interesting. Because it's so yeah. We go. How do people go to the toilet in the Star Wars universe? Is something that's long bugged me. Perhaps they use the uh, the same three shell system from Demolition Man, but who knows? It, I don't understand that either. But uh, yeah, so the Journal of the Wills might play a part in this. Uh, and if Luke has spent all our time get, getting to you know know his inner self on on that island, and maybe he's realised that this eternal battle of good and evil uh, needs to stop, and people need to have their bloody heads banged together, uh, and maybe he's become some sort of uh, a radical. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe he may not be the hero that we have come to expect. Mm. 
Yeah, the parallels with Empire Strikes Back are, are quite interesting because obviously that had was quite training heavy and uh, quite dark, and it looks like this one's going in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, mm. I would hope that it's not First simply one. that you can't simply overlay Empire Strikes Back in this one in the same way that you can overlay Force Awakens on New Hope. I would hope that this this breaks new ground, and I, I have a lot of faith in Ryan Johnson I think he will deliver a very very good film it, it looks good so far but again it's it's very much a teaser how long 80 seconds something yeah. like that uh, so yeah not a lot to go on at this this point in time uh, but yeah fingers crossed happy happy yes mm. and it, it of course it uh, debuted at Star Wars Celebration last weekend which James Dyer was at yeah. um, and uh, you can read all about in a forthcoming issue of Empire Magazine. Can we? Sneaky plug. Yes, we can. Ooh, can we? Yeah, we can. Oh, that's nice. There we go. There we go. Everyone's happy. Uh, what else is happening this week in the world of movie news? Nicholas. Okay, so Will Smith is in talks to play the genie in Guy Ritchie's Aladdin movie, which is such a strange sentence. <laughs> I mean, I've got questions about almost every word in that. I mean, there, did you see that tweet that was going around uh, with uh, Guy Ritchie? It just said, Guy Ritchie directs Aladdin, and it was the picture of Alan Partridge with his dictaphone. You know, just... <laughs> It's a bit, it's a bit monkey tennis, isn't it? But you know, it could, it could be great. I, I kind of have doubts, personal doubts, about whether Guy Ritchie is, is the right guy to do a live action remake of Disney's Aladdin. But you never know, do you? You never know. I never do know. feel quite good about that casting, though. I think Will Smith <clears throat> is, uh, if you're gonna have a movie star playing a genie, the genie, um, why not Will Smith? Yeah, because you need someone who's got a lot of charisma. You need someone who can improvise. You need someone who's funny. You need someone who's going to somehow match up to the force of nature that was Robin Williams in the original. How do you do that? It's a yeah. very short list, I would say. I mean, you, you kind of almost don't want to... He's not going to try and ape Robin Williams' sort of vocal acrobatics and impressions and voice voices. You can't. You just can't. It's an impossible task. So you would hope that they put a bit of a new spin on it, that it's not just this sort of endless sea of of uh, you know different characters coming out of the genie well yeah I don't think there, there, there are very few people like Robin Williams who you can just go right off you go yeah and uh, probably we'll, just Jim we'll, Carrey yeah Jim Carrey you know who, who else could possibly be on some sort of improvisational plane Rob Eddie, Mur- Eddie Murphy Rob Brighton <laughs> yeah. um, Will Ferrell yeah, people like that Ryan yeah. Reynolds who is Amazingly funny, um, you know. But I think I think Will Smith. This is a good choice. He hasn't he hasn't been in the kind of full comedy mode for a really long time. Suicide Squad, obviously, he was very serious in that. Concussion, focus was a bit lighter, but he was he wasn't really going for full comedy. So it's been all the way back to like Men in Black Three, which was 2012, and arguably that wasn't very funny. <laughs> so I, I, it's this feels like a kind of throwback to 90s Will Smith. Yeah, I hope. Yeah. Um, well, what's interesting was he was he was in talks, or maybe he still is in talks, to star in Tim Burton's Dumbo. I don't think so. I think that apparently the same stories are saying that he's not involved in that. He's anymore. not involved. So in I think he, he probably had a meeting about that, and it turned into a meeting about this. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah. It's like you don't like Dumbo. Well, we have Aladdin. You, you don't like Aladdin. Bambi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, There's the broomstick and Fantasia. You think it'd be great for that? Will uh, we have no shortage of movies? Um, yeah. Yeah. It's intriguing. Can Guy Ritchie pull it off? We shall see. How live action is this film going to be? Do we know? Is 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 they, are we actually going to see Will Smith, or are we going to see some sort of CGI? Um, well, uh, we don't know that yet. I assume it's going to be a CG genie, a mm, CG genie, a CG genie. We all jumped on that, <laughs> <laughs> and it all felt bad about it immediately afterwards. Yeah, um, that, would, that would not be one of my three wishes. 
to like pull that gag off. It wouldn't be, you know, <laughs> what is you know? And you're and you're. It was one of mine. It was oh, really. <laughs> I've only got one left. My Dumbledore uh, pun last week was uh, one of the other ones. Um, so moving on. Um, I, this is just. I don't know how interested you guys were in the story, but I'm really excited about this. Um, Lock and Key, which is a Joe Hill graphic novel, comic mm-hmm. book, call it what you will, series, um, which is amazing. I read it last year and, and it kind of blew me away. And it's turned. It's getting turned into a Hulu live-action TV series. The pilot's going to be directed by Scott Derrickson of Doctor Strange. Mm-hmm. It's going to be produced by Carlton Cuse. And um, if you don't know the story, it's this, It's set in New England in this creepy mansion and a family move in and they find these keys and they're kind of magical keys that can do all kinds of things. One of them, you can open someone's head and mess around with their memories. And there's a demon who is trying to open this door in an underground cave and unleash the forces of evil. And it's it's really good. I mean, it's going to be a really tricky one to pull off in live action because um, it's pretty out there and pretty trippy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Orsi and, uh, Roberto Orsi and Alex Kurtzman tried to do it and they did it. They shot a pilot, I think, about five years ago and that nothing happened there. But I'm excited by this. Okay. I, I actually, I, I like Joe Hill a lot, but I haven't read that. I should, uh, I should check it out. I recommend it. There we go. So Hulu and good. Lock and Key, yeah, all on board. Sounds good to me. You sold me. Uh, earlier this week, we had news that um, James Gunn will be directing Gal- Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three, which is exciting news. Yes, who 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 could have thought that the director of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy Volume One, would return? But no, this is I think this is exciting news. This is good news. It, they they sort of did what. Um, they did last time where they essentially announced the sequel before the, f- the, f- the next film has arrived which is a sort of real vote of confidence you know uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 premiered this week I think or, or last week it's been getting loads of positive buzz on Twitter so Marvel are obviously quite confident about the future of this franchise uh, and where it's going to go the, these characters are going to be in Infinity War obviously Um and yeah, it makes sense, I guess, that James Gunn should shepherd them through to the to the threequel. It's interesting because it suggests that Star Lord is going to come to Earth in Infinity War, mm. and then instead of staying home, he's going to bugger off again. Well, it's funny. I saw somewhere that there's been little morsels about what we can expect from Infinity War. I think Zoe Saldana was was interviewed, and she seemed to imply that the the fight will come to space. So rather than the Guardians go to Earth the Avengers might go to space. I mean, that's where Thanos lives, you know. Mm-hmm. So they might go visit his space toilets. Um, we don't know how maybe. much. Yeah, we don't know how much they're going to be in, in those films. It's hard to say, isn't it? Mm. I may or may not have spoken to Chris Pratt pretty recently, and he may or may not have said that he has finished shooting on Infinity yeah. War already. So, well, yeah, I, I mean, they do have don't... like three and a half thousand characters to, <laughs> to fit in over a yeah. six-hour running time. Nobody's finished in these movies. <laughs> Nobody's finished. The thing, even after six months after it be released, people will be called back for additional shooting. It's it's yeah. it's one of these. Ah, uh, you know, it, this is not as actually. This is a kind of a surprise because he'll be the uh, James Gunn would be the first director to see a trilogy all the way through mm. in the in the MCU. Uh, it obviously shows a lot of confidence in Guardians Two, the same way that they announced Guardians Two just before Guardians One came out. So uh, fingers crossed, none of us have seen Guardians Two yet, but. Uh, Fingers crossed that it's as good as the first one, or as close to uh, the first one. Um, but as for Infinity War, oh, I hadn't thought about them going to space. Mm. That'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah, take that Fast and Furious Ten that everyone <laughs> thinks is going to end up in space because that's the only way it can go. Except if it goes inwards, 
the core of the earth. That's right. Yeah, Dom Toretto, the only person who can withstand the heat at the core <laughs> of planet Earth. He's got enough noz to keep him cool down there. The Earth's <laughs> core. Now I'm now I'm I'm dreaming up a Fast and Furious Guardians crossover with Vin uh. Diesel meeting Groot. <gasps> Whoa! I am Groot. They'd be I family. Am Dom. <laughs> We I, are I'm, he's just, yeah, Groot just says I'm Groot and Vin Diesel just says we are family and they just <laughs> say that to each other for two hours and it still makes a billion dollars should we talk, should we talk about the fact that Fast and Furious 8 uh, has set the record which I don't expect it to hold for very much longer but certainly not by the end of the year uh, for the biggest opening weekend mm. of all time mm-hmm. uh, by that I mean worldwide because uh, it, it actually underperformed Fast 7 by or Furious 7 if you're an American viewer listener um, by some considerable distance in the States it, it opened to less than 100 million in the States which is not a flop by any stretch of imagination it is very 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 good indeed but um, that was uh, lent considerable ballast by uh, the rest of the world uh, so 520 million dollar opening weekend <laughs> I mean, that's ridiculous isn't it half a billion dollars in a, in a couple of days wow yeah. I did not know that yeah I, I mean it, it is partly down to as you say the sort of quirk of, of release dates a lot of movies tend to stagger international releasing and this I think they, they went full blast you know as in, in true Fast and Furious style they went full on and released pretty much everywhere on the same day which probably helped also they made it mandatory you had to go and see it that was yes. that was, yeah. that was an interesting yeah. <laughs> development but I, yeah. I went along with it it's yeah. fine uh, we actually did pay to see it this week didn't we Nick we did yeah. we did I'm still recovering <laughs> I feel shell shocked uh yeah, I should have picked the shell up and thrown it at a Russian separatist. <laughs> um, I do wish we were doing a spoiler special for that film. There is so much to talk about. It's a film um, you really can deconstruct just for hours and hours. Just uh, if you start to pick apart the the sort of logic or physics of it, then then you well, just get lost in a wormhole. I'm no scientist, but I think if you started to do <laughs> pick apart the physics of the Fast and Furious franchise, I, I don't know, you'd be here all year. But the uh, the um, the logic of it is really interesting, and Dom's master plan in particular is, is keeping me awake at night. Uh, how did he know what he knew, when he knew it, and how did he communicate that to other people? I don't want to get into too much, because I'm sure there are some people out there uh, who haven't seen it. But Judging by the gross, only about two of them. <laughs> <laughs> and they both live in a submarine in, in Greenland or Russia. It's hard, to, it's hard to, or green screen then. Green screen yeah. then, I think is where they, 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 they went. They yeah. never had a title card, I don't think, I'm probably getting this wrong, but I, I, they had a title card for New York, which is the most obvious yeah. place, but they didn't have one for the whole the cold place. Of the movie. Oh, they did, they did. They, they did, did have one. Yeah, okay, yeah, all did. right, sorry about they that. They did, yeah. Okay, yeah. all right. Yeah, the, the, the Fast and Furious franchise is nothing if not about details. Okay, <laughs> yeah, clearly. It's about the micro, not the macro. <laughs> uh, where would we? Yes, anyway, so it's done incredibly well. $520 million worldwide, and it's, it's almost certain now to break a billion. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a big noise. We live in strange times. We live in strange times. Uh, should we talk about another franchise that's hit a billion dollars over the last few years, which is James Bond? Do, 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 do. James Bond, James Bond, <laughs> million dollars, billion dollars. Uh, he's, he's done very well for himself, hasn't he? This James Bond. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, Sony's deal with uh, E.ON and uh, with MGM expired as a spectre. And so currently, according to the uh, New York Times, there is a five-way studio tug-of-war uh, to take over the Bond franchise, uh, but they're only being offered a one-film deal, mm. which is very interesting. And the five studios are Sony, Fox, Universal, Megan Ellison's Annapurna, which... 
is a wild card here. Nobody, mm. you know, she's um, somebody who's been investing in, in independent productions uh, and seems to be going bigger with this one. And Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers. So interestingly, Paramount not going for this. Uh, they have, of course, their own spy franchise, Mission Impossible. Uh, and really interestingly, Disney aren't going for it, presumably because they own everything else. <laughs> yes. They're just giving other people a chance. <laughs> yeah, go on. You can have Bond. It's fine. <laughs> he could have joined the Avengers. That's a shame. So um, Disney are back in the game. <laughs> <laughs> the, the really interesting... Well, for me, the interesting detail was Sony made their... They did a video presentation to try and win over... Um, you know the, the people who own the rights, and um, they they re, they reconstructed a set from Doctor No mm-hmm. to do their presentation, in, which is an amazing touch. I think everyone should have had to have done that, like do it from a hollowed out volcano base. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, presumably they were stroking a white cat's in the <laughs> yeah. video. I hope there were lasers involved. Yeah, but it's all it's all very intriguing. And uh, this week, so it seems like you know we're heading together. We're I think we're heading for that point where. I would imagine this is just a complete guess that they will announce they'll 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 go with someone and then they'll probably announce Bond twenty five as a package deal. Whenever that happens, they'll announce the director. They'll announce who's going to be Bond. Is it going to be Daniel Craig again? Is it going to be someone else? Sam Mendes in an interview this week apparently said that it's not going to be what you expect, mm. which is different. We weird because. Lots of people expect different things. So some people are expecting it to be uh, Daniel Craig. Some people expect it to be Tom Hiddleston. Some people are saying maybe Idris Elba might be back in the ring. Uh, Dan Stevens, who seems to be Bond and waiting. I don't know. It's, there's there's lots of stuff going on. So I, you know, but very intrigued. Very intrigued. Captain Marvel has a pair of directors. Um, they are Anna Boden and mm-hmm. Ryan Fleck, the directors of Mississippi Grind, which I know you're a big fan of. Love that film. Great film. And, and of course, Half Nelson as well. Staying on a Marvel vibe, uh, Spider-Man has been confirmed uh, as being in Avengers Four. Not not a shock, but <laughs> it's, a, it's not a shock. Is it's it? certainly interesting. Uh, and of course, Kevin Feige this week, um, I think, sat down with some American press in America at Marvel HQ, and he, he gave some tidbits for the future of, of Marvel, and that was one of them. Uh, but he also confirmed that the the Spider-Man spin-offs that are happening at Sony, so they you know they're really <laughs> really trying to build it now with uh, you know a Black Cat and Silver Sable spin-off and the Venom spin-off that they are nothing to do with Marvel Marvel have no input into those movies uh, they only deal directly with things that involve the web slinger himself so that doesn't make me feel any better about those movies yeah I have to say but hey ho we shall see we shall see what happens in the future uh, anything else John and your big movie news clock anything um, before we move on the only thing I have uh, is Thor Ragnarok we had a little bit of minor news of staying in Marvel um, Taika Waititi has announced that he will be starring uh, in a small role he's going to be playing an 8 foot tall alien called Korg who's made entirely out of rocks It's uh, he, he lives on the planet Sakaar which is the um the planet that Thor is, is banished from. It's the gladiatorial planet that Jeff Goldblum lives mm-hmm. on. He's, he's apparently, according to Watiti, he's huge and heavy, but he has a very light soul. This is what he said. Obviously, being made of rocks, we would have gotten someone like The Rock to play him, but there wasn't enough chicken or salmon in Australia to sustain both him and Chris Hemworth, Hemsworth. <laughs> so we got the next best thing, which is this super hot young character actor named Taika Watiti, who I've personally come to love. <laughs> 
so that's that's a nice that's a nice thing to look forward to I suppose yeah absolutely and uh, I should mention before we move on uh, as well that uh, the this week we saw the first footage from Kingsman the Golden Circle uh, in a very mm. unusual way I really like the way they, they did this actually uh, it's not a trailer per se it is a 15 second blipfurt is what mm. I believe these things are now being called officially uh, and it's a series of images from the movie uh, running past your eyes faster than you can possibly see it so the idea is that you will have to freeze frame it to check out each uh, insane image from that movie which I'm very excited about um, so yeah there you go lots of lots of madness coming our way intriguing okay so that's it for the movie news but haha let's talk about ourselves for a little bit here uh, because it is the uh, end of the month which means it's new Empire time hooray uh, here we are hey, yeah uh, so here we are the new issue of Empire Magazine is on sale right now and it is an absolute belter on the cover this month it's Alien Covenant oh my word yes and I've got a lovely picture of Danny McBride on the front lead. no wait no that's an alien um, and uh, it's an amazing uh, embossed cover with the uh, the alien from Ridley Scott's Alien Covenant and inside Helen O'Hara the alien is a nightmare to shoot by the way if you're wondering <laughs> just keeps moving around if, you, if you're considering Such a doing a photography session with a xenomorph <laughs> honestly don't do it he's a complete dick how many photographers did we go through he ate about he ate nine of them <laughs> and then he sort of somehow burst out of the tenth. Yeah, um, which is actually the shot we got. It's him going. Hey! <laughs> yeah, alien selfies are not are not easy to uh, to get. Uh, so Helen O'Hara, who's currently running around um, in Nepal at the moment, and I haven't heard from her in a couple of days. I'm getting a little worried, but uh, she should be back next week. Uh, she's uh, doing that amazing running uh, thing that she signed up for. She was on set in Australia. And uh, she talked to everybody, Ridley Scott, Michael Fassbender, Catherine Waterson, Danny McBride, the alien itself, all sorts of things. So it's a really, really great feature. So check it out. And if you don't like alien movies, if you don't like Ridley Scott, then honestly, what are you doing? But there's other stuff in the magazine as well. We were on set of Guy Ritchie's King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. Uh, we also talked to Amy Schumer and Goldie Hawn, who are teaming up ahead of Snatched. Uh, we have a feature on Pirates of the Caribbean, Salazar's Revenge. Maybe we'll find out why it's called Salazar's Revenge over here, not Dead Men Tell No Tales, which is a much better title. Um, we were also talking to uh, almost everybody involved with Thiep, the brilliant Thiep, which is now back on our screens, or coming back on our screens very, very soon, and uh, asking the question, how can you do political satire Yeah. post Donald Trump uh, and the Empire interview this this month is Numi Rapace um, who is in a film called Unlocked Unlocked and uh, also in Alien Covenant maybe maybe uh, in the news section we have looks at Spider-Man Homecoming Paddy Considine's Journeyman Fargo Season 3 Ray Winston is a pint of milk we review all the films around this month as well and the review section is also very, very good this month. Lots of great things inside the issue. Uh, Garth, Gareth Edwards talking about uh, Rogue One. Uh, Steve Pemberton and Reese Shearsmith taking us through all their favourite looks from Inside Number 9 over the years. Uh, Don Coscarelli on Phantasm. Uh, and Manchester by the Sea is one of my favourite things. Uh, we have, oh, also John Spades, the screenwriter of Passengers. I interviewed him and we talked in depth about the film's successes and failures and maybe the, the bits that people felt the film didn't tackle that well, ethically and morally. And he mounts a robust defence, shall we say. Um, and what else is in there? Oh yes, Kenneth Lonergan. I sat down with Kenneth Lonergan uh, and we talked through that scene from Manchester by the Sea. You know the one I'm talking about. We talked about that. Big deep dive as well. So, the one with uh, the seagull. The one with the seagull. Stephen Seagull. That's the one. Uh, so very very exciting issue on sale right now £4.70 all good and evil news agents highly 
to one of those immediately. Right. Should we have a guest? Yes. Let's have a guest. Uh, very, very exciting to see that National Geographic uh, are moving into scripted drama. And they're doing so with a, with a show called Genius, uh, which which may, over various seasons, uh, tell the story of particular geniuses. And the one they're starting off with, well, it's a bit of a no-brainer, isn't it? Which is also a working title for the show. Albert Einstein, who I believe was a smart dude. Who better to play him than the great Jeffrey Rush? Oscar winner, of course, for Shine, nominated countless other times as well, uh, and a really, really great guy as well. He came into London about two weeks ago. I sat down with him in a hotel room, and uh, we had a good old chat about all sorts of things. John, you've heard this more recently than I have. What did we talk about? Uh, Einstein. And the nature of genius, didn't we? Genius. Yep. And uh, and mystery men. Did which, you leave that in? Yes. The farting stuff. Yes. Okay. I thought that was very interesting. There we go. So there we go. Uh, we run the gamut. <laughs> Einstein to farting. Yeah. <laughs> in, yeah. In sixty seconds. I think no. young Einstein might have beaten us too. Though we talked about that. We talked about. Uh, we talked about Yahoo Serious. We talked about all sorts of stuff. Amazing. There you go. Jeffrey Rush. Do enjoy. Uh, we're delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the great Jeffrey Rush. How are you, sir? Thank you very much. Very good, very good. Uh, glad to hear that you're not jet lagged. You okay? I flew in from Melbourne yesterday. Okay, so I'm not on an autopilot, <laughs> but it's just always strange when uh, you're ten hours out of whack. Yeah, know? absolutely. So, what time is it for you now? What are you? It would be one in the morning. Okay, all right. It's not bad. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah, you a night owl? Do you usually stay up late? Uh, it, it varies. It okay. really varies. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see how we go. And uh, uh, so this is uh, obviously want to talk about genius, mm-hmm. in which you become one of the few people. This is actually surprising that not many people have played Albert Einstein. I looked uh, into that. Yeah. Because my colleague Fred Skepsy, mm-hmm. a great Australian director, and I worked with him about four or five years ago on a Patrick White adaptation. Yes. Of, of a novel, and he had done a, a sort of. A, not screwball comedy it was called IQ oh yes of course with Walter Matthau, Walter Matthau. Yeah. Yeah. and it was about Einstein in his latter years at Princeton and it was like by memory there was a teen romance where Einstein's cousin or something was That's wanting right. to get the girl and Tim she, Robbins, if I she was very attracted to him it yeah. was um, oh, I can't think of the woman who was in it I think um, it was Meg Ryan I think it, it was, was Meg, Meg Ryan, Ryan Meg of course Ryan. Yeah, so uh, that's one of the few. Yeah. And then within the series, we have this, when I read these episodes towards the end, I think it's like about episode nine, um, Einstein's then housekeeper keeps pestering him about MGM and the the screenplay, Have You Read It Yet? Okay, okay. Because they're doing this story called The Beginning of the End. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's about the development of the atomic bomb. Okay. And uh, Einstein just he, uh, st- still remains a pacifist right yes. to his dying days. Uh, but, you know, by in the default position, gets caught up pretty much with the blame for the atomic bomb because Time magazine put his face with a mushroom cloud and E equals MC squared. Um, and for him, and dramatically within the story, it's not a bad kind of uh, narrative moment because he was always a pacifist. He, mm. he grew up despising German militarism and so forth. 
uh, handed in his German passport and said, mm-hmm. I want to be a citizen of the world. He was a very open yeah, of course. thinker, you know. But anyway, uh, in, the, in, the, in the story, you then see that this is in the late 40s, I think. So he was pretty much in his late 60s. You see screen tests, you know, with the wax pencil and the kind of whatever, and three Einsteins come up. <laughs> and I loved, I loved the idea of that. And I met these guys, the three guys that were going to do it. I met them at lunch okay. once in the catering tent. You know? Right. And they looked perfectly cast <laughs> uh, because I said, I'd love to, just even reading the text, is like, we are going to save the world. You know what I mean? It was, it was a great, it was fairly early on in the shoot and I thought, I'm really glad that we're trying to find a way of having these characters think and speak in their native language, Germany, of yes. German. Yes. But they're in, it's English language, yes, you know, course. because it's, it's that, actorial dilemma and I've spoken to quite a number of actors you don't want to sound like a native German speaker where English is their second language it's yes. quite a different thing yes. so you've got to find cadence and rhythm and certain sounds so that it doesn't feel like you know it's it's Clouseau in French yeah. in English yes. <laughs> you know what I mean yes. it's the thing uh, and then eventually I go to see it, and I did get to see the extracts of the guy who played Einstein in the beginning of the end. And it's it's not what I'd call a great performance. <laughs> um, I, and I did find out that he was a German actor, I believe. Uh-huh. But to me, it sounded like he was an Irish character actor on okay. the MGM lot. Yeah. Doing... Yeah. A, a German accent that had a lot of Irish. In it. Well, you have to play the cheap seats, I guess. <laughs> uh, it's pretty funny. Yeah, but apart from that, um, I think Andy Serkis did a film about uh, Eddington and Einstein, yes. which was more about the one chapter in his life where uh, the British mathematician or physicist Eddington was the one that did a lot of. He helped him enormously when they were analysing the refraction of the eclipse mm-hmm. off Mercury. That was the way they yes. could could show that gravitational forces of the sun could bend light. And that pretty much yeah. sealed um, Einstein's celebration of, of, of his achievement. That it, The ripple effect from that was that, you know, the theory of relativity has been kind of, or one aspect of it has yes. been absolutely empirically verified absolutely so that's two so yeah and i think that's about it i'm waiting for einstein the musical (laughs) that i'm sure that's gonna happen you know well there is yahoo serious well of course course. yahoo serious (laughs) which you know and it's time and that must be now 30 years ago mid 80s it feels like it yeah yeah it would be uh it was a very um rock and roll Antipodean take mm-hmm. on the story, mm-hmm. um, and I know I, I don't. I didn't know Yahoo well. I ran into him occasionally because this was in my theatre days, not my, being in the world of film and everything. Mm. Um, but I, I quite liked the audacity of of what if he'd been uh, <laughs> from Tasmania. <laughs> 
it's a python sketch really you know absolutely what if you could play a bitching guitar solo yeah that, that's, that's right yes. absolutely yes. Uh, Yes, the hair was, I think, something short-circuiting from an amp, and that made it go into the recognisable halo, and he thought, I look good like that. Precisely. Know? None of which, I imagine, you took when you were, <laughs> when you were planning out well, your version. No, when I was looking at it, I, you know, I was looking at things, you know, the, the, iconog- the iconography of him. It's, like, it's a little bit like there used to be a, a massive painting on one of the buildings in L.A., and it was an Apple ad, I think, Think Different. They had yes. a, a logo. And it was John and Yoko, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I thought, I grew up with John Lennon. His writing, his poetry, his time with the Beatles, his solo album invaded my life from okay. young teenage to into my 30s. You Interesting. Know? Uh, and I thought, you know, a 13-year-old looking at that building now would go, I think that might be John. He's one of the Beatles. I'm not sure which one. You know what I mean? There'd <laughs> yeah, be yeah, that yeah. vagueness. And so it's the same with Einstein. I mean, he, I was four when he died. Yeah. So ev- everything I know about him has been filtered down through a dalliance that I had with physics when I was at high school. Up until year 12, I was, I was doing chemistry, applied maths, like I'd had the wrong vocational guidance officer <laughs> because I had fantasies from about year eight in, you know, junior school that I would be an astronomer. Oh, really? Because I'd become obsessed by the Mercury space program when of I was course, about yeah. 10. Okay. Whenever, whenever Alan Shepard went into space and then yeah. when John, Len, John Glenn orbited. Yes, yes, yes. Then the Gemini program, the Apollo program. This was all happening right through to the the Challenger and the shuttles and the space station. I always read about that stuff. Okay. You know, so I'm Brian Cox's and Neil deGrasse Tyson's biggest fan <laughs> because uh, as a lay cosmologist, yes. these guys are broadening those kind of horizons. Yeah, of course, it's very yeah. populist way which is fantastic so my dreams of being an astronomer got crushed and also in about year 11 uh, is when we as students at my very suburban state high school we took over the running of our school drama club and then of course I went to university and it was a very active time politically and theatrically on campus and then I went in that direction okay but I still I still um, try and keep up with the complexities of quantum physics. <laughs> but, but what I want to say to your listeners is if they, hopefully they will watch this series because yes. you know, the logo is, it's the, the mind behind the man mm-hmm. or the man behind the mind, I think is the more correct reading of it. Yes. Um, it's not a National Geographic documentary. It is a scripted drama series and mm-hmm. it looks at this central protagonist who... If you almost treat him as a fictional character, he's somebody that moves through an epoch of time. Yeah. That's the golden age of Prussian scientific, well, late 19th century industrial and scientific development, whether it's the kinematograph or the automobile or X-rays or the Curies yeah, breaking down radio. There was electromagnetism. There was stuff going on. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, of course. And then they had the dilemma of confronting two major world wars where science and someone like Einstein in particular, he would have been in his mid-30s by then. The First World War, he was a staunch pacifist and anti-German militarist. 
he found that the, the, the outcome of the Great War was really a, a great moral dilemma for him because, let's say, one of his close colleagues, Fritz Haber, mm-hmm. would be given the Nobel Prize for, uh, as, as a chemist, he, act, he found a way of extracting nitrogen from the air to make fertilizer because the powers that be in Germany at that time said, we're going to run out of harvests in the next three or four years and our population will perish. And he, through the goodness of science, salvaged a country's well-being by keeping our agriculture alive. Mm-hmm. At the same time, Fritz Haber also invented chlorine gas, which kind of wiped out a hell of a lot of people in the First World War. Wow. And he and Einstein came to you know, argumentative blows over science being used for violence rather yeah, than humankind's benefit, you mm. know. And then, of course, right through to the bomb. So, you know, in some ways I looked at the role, I, I sort of fictionalized the story in my mind and said, okay, well, I did King Lear last year, and I yeah. thought, I don't want to read books about King Lear. I read a little about the history of the play and everything. Uh, I have to go by what story is being told, who are the other characters, what are the forces he's up against. He, he, this character is the central protagonist, and he confronts the world himself, mm-hmm. the metaphoric heath, the mm-hmm. storm, mm-hmm. the domestic strife, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and Einstein in this particular series is writ large on his domestic level and his scientific level and his flaws as well as his great generosity as a humanist and pacifist and all of those elements that make him such an interesting contradictory character. Mm, uh, they're all in yeah. play, which yeah. is a, a great way of saying he's not just the guy that stuck his tongue out at the paparazzi, <laughs> even though I think we, we get that moment in there somewhere. It might even just be in a newspaper. And I think J. Edgar Hoover looks at it and takes it very personally because <laughs> he was, you know, really uh, witch-hunting Einstein yes. as, a, as a communist, yes. which he wasn't. I mean, he had, he had socialist philosophical beliefs, but he said there's no way I would uh, subject myself to being run by the state that means i would lose my individuality which is crucial to every human being you know uh just one last thing i want to ask you jeffrey uh, before i let you go is uh one of your performances i really enjoy is casanova frankenstein in mystery Uh, men thank you now i'm sure you weren't expected to hear that uh and there is one bad reviews for that (laughs) there were some bad reviews but that that (laughs) that film has aged uh has, has aged well i think there is one scene in particular i've always wanted to ask you about and it's a scene where Paul Rubens, how can I put this delicately, farts in your face. <laughs> and I remember being distraught. I even wrote a review of it going, uh, uh, the former P.B. Herman rhymes down a window yes. and lets go in yes. newly minted Oscar winner's face. And I, yes. I've always wanted to know what was going through your mind as you filmed that sequence. Uh, disdain <laughs> for these wannabe suburban superheroes i thought it was such to me that sense of comedy i suppose because of barry humphreys yeah the idea of taking from flaming carrot mm. the idea of comic book superheroes who had really no powers yes they were average joes or joe s's yes. from the suburbs yes. one was good with a shovel 
one had terrible wind, the yes. other one had anger. Yes. You know, and I yeah. thought this is this is genius. Yeah. This is something that no one's ever seen before. Unfortunately, the film, because there were seven amazing comedians playing that gang, the film's rough cut ended up to be something like three hours <laughs> twenty. So, unfortunately, poor old Casanova Frankenstein hit the cutting room floor. Oh no! Because um, the scenes I had with my psychiatrist girlfriend, mm -hmm. psychiatrist girlfriend, we were like the high comedy. I ended up dancing her. She catches me in bed with the role that Claire Folani played, the okay. ingenue. Interesting. And I go, this is not what it looks like. And she thinks it looks exactly what it looks like. <laughs> and I charmed her and I waltzed her like it was a William Powell, Carol Lombard scene and threw her off the balcony over a cliff. <laughs> and I love the idea that the low comedy of the suburban humor yes. and then this was all intercut, but it, it didn't kind of oh, turn that's like... Shame. That's a shame. But it's... I have noted uh, through some, just through fan mails, people occasionally yeah. say that film rocked, you know, and people come up to me and, go, you know, you try and pick the demographic. You can see them, they're going to come up and ask for a selfie or an autograph. Yeah. And you go, bang a sisters fan or, <laughs> you know what I mean? You try and you have, you play this crazy game with yourself. Uh, and there were people who just come up and go, I am ballerina man. <laughs> And I go, that's really great. You're quoting a line from a film that everyone seemed to loathe. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Disco is not dead. Disco means life. Yes. Uh, but there we go. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Jeffrey Rush, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank Cheers. you. That was Jeffrey Rush there. And Genius begins on the National Geographic Channel over here on Sunday. That's the 23rd of April, Sunday. Okay, time now for this week's reviews. Let's start off with Their Finest, uh, which is a World War II, how would you describe it? In drama dramedy? Comedy drama with uh, Gemma Arterton, who was last week's guest. Yeah, and the way I described it to Gemma Arterton or, or asked if she would agree was a, a, a wartime romantic comedy feminist behind-the-scenes drama because it, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's unpigeonholable a little Isn't bit. Isn't she in it? Why were you describing it to her? <laughs> <laughs> she forgot. I was pitching it to her just to see. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is... Uh, as as Ian Freer in, in the Empire Review describes it, it's a little bit like a sort of British Hail Caesar set in the 1940s Ealing Studios sort of uh, vibe. So Gemma Arterton plays a, a female screenwriter in, in World War II who's sort of recruited to uh, write a propaganda film for the government. Uh, she's, she's essentially recruited to write slop, as they call it, which is dialogue for women the, the dialogue at the time is mostly written by men who don't really understand the female experience um, but as as you know world war ii sets in and all the men go to war uh, women have to step up so it, Gemma artisan's character is uh, recruited to write a film about two women who s steal their father's boats and and uh, use it in the dunkirk rescue so it's a really interesting story um, and along the way, she meets a co-writer played by Sam Claflin from The Hunger Games. Um, and then she's also uh, tasked with dealing with a very sort of smug and arrogant actor played by Bill Nye, who is in a, in a very Bill Nye role. It's extremely, you, it's the sort of role you can't think of anyone else except Bill Nye to play. And it's a, it's, it's a very light, it's a very broad crowd pleaser, I suppose you could call it. It, it it's 
slightly predictable in the ways it, it goes. I, th- I feel like the romance is mm. perhaps um, a little a little bit obvious, you could say. But between Gemma Arterton and Bill Nye uh, and and Sam Claflin and Sam Claflin, not all not, three of them, not Bill Nye, no. Well, no, no. Oh, okay. So between Gemma Arterton and Sam Claflin, yes. Oh, okay. uh, but but what it what it does do really interestingly, unlike a lot of crowd pleasers, um, is it doesn't really talk down to the audience. There's a lot of interesting ideas. Um, being played upon here, most obviously uh, with with the war and with bureaucracy and and the power of cinema to bring people out to to boost morale. I mean, that's that's what thirty million people were going to see films in Britain uh, at the time when there was forty million people as a population. So it's a huge communication tool, and it's a huge way of. Uh, lifting people's spirits at a really sort of downbeat time, and and it really gets under the skin of the the, the business of making films. There's a lot of lovely behind the scenes moments um, and things that I think uh, filmmakers might recognise. But it also talks a, a lot about the role of women. Um, uh, you know, the 1940s was a time when women sort of came to the fore a bit. Mm. Their, their their roles changed because the men were away at war. So suddenly there are women doing the jobs of men and, and it, so it's sort of quietly feminist film there's little moments of sexism um, there's a point where Richard E. Grant plays a government official and he says well obviously you, you, you can't be paid as much as the chaps you know and it's a little throwaway line but it's very telling and there's this really interesting mm. the way Gemma Artisan's character responds to this sexism that's quite that's quite interesting that you know you can make a feminist film and it's not nakedly feminist you know it's not it doesn't sort of shove this uh, agenda down your throat but it does present these arguments in a really uh, sort of organic and natural way and through her character you you do see the inequalities and see mm. and um and and she as a character also fights for her own space in a very in a very natural way yes. and i think that i think that's really impressive um and it also it's very funny it's yeah. very it's very it's very likable a lot of that comes from bill nye you know he he does steal the show a lot of the time and he, there are times when you think he's on autopilot but he, he he the way he can just raise a little eyebrow and make you laugh there's, there's something very impressive about that i mean he is he we, he's shown us before how good he is at that sort of thing fantastic so this could be a double bill with dunkirk <laughs> later in the year yeah but um no it's it's an extremely likable film and um it has a lot to say which i think is 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 rare for this sort of film sometimes so, we talk about yeah. fast and furious 8 came out last week we're not watching it it has a lot to say about um oh uh family family yes yeah and uh and, and family. nitrous oxide <laughs> nitrous oxide <laughs> yeah and, and nothing else, really. They're fastest. Uh, they're fastest. They're <laughs> furiousest. Four stars in for Alona Sherfig's uh, Their Finest. Uh, a movie I suspect has actually something in common with Warren Beatty's Rules Don't Apply, which is the next film we're going to be hmm. talking about. Both are you know, informed by, by love of cinema. Yes. Yeah. Uh, this, this is another sort of interesting, sort of, I guess you could call it romantic comedy set against the backdrop of... Uh, behind the scenes cinema but this is this is Hollywood with this is more 1960s or late late 50s early 60s um, and it's a strange film this because this is something that Warren Beatty's been talking about making for what 40 years now I think I think he's had it gestating in some form or another for since since the 1960s um, because it, it is about Howard Hughes who is this extraordinary 
extraordinary historical character. Uh, he's a businessman. He's a, an aviator, and uh, and he is a film producer. Um, but this is not a Howard Hughes biopic. This is not a film about Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes sort of skulks in the background, quite literally. I mean, you you sort of the first time you see him, he is just hiding in the shadows. I mean, he's a very reclusive man. Um, he's a you know he hates human or physical contact really so you, a lot of the scenes he is just like hiding behind a curtain uh, or he's just in a, in a room with all the lights off um, but the focus isn't really on him the focus is on um, two young people there's so there's Frank Forbes who is a uh, uh, one of his drivers he has drivers who drive around his actresses around Hollywood played by Alden Ehrenreich and then there's Marla Mabry played by Lily Collins who is one of his upcoming young starlets who wants to be big in Hollywood. Both of these characters are strictly religious um, and both of them have a sort of burgeoning uh, romance for each other. Um, but the, their religion gets in the way of this a little bit and also Howard Hughes gets in the way of this a little bit uh, as as he is wont to do. And so the, it's, a, I, I, it's an interesting film. It, it for, for something that's been gestating for so long, it doesn't quite feel like it's focused enough there is um a sort of screwball energy to it there is there you know the fact that howard hughes is so eccentric means there's an element of farce to it are there wacky mix-ups involving jars of urine <laughs> there's there's no jars of urine but they he does mine some of the more the wilder moments of howard hughes life i, th- I think the fact that it is a little unfocused means it's not always as successful as it could be a lot of the time but there is some really interesting stuff there and i think uh, it that you can a lot of people have been reading some sort of autobiographical element to it that 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 Warren Beatty sees a little bit of himself in Howard Hughes. I mean, he is now considered sort of Hollywood legend, um, and so there's a sort of there there is a kind of mysterious uh, and slightly otherworldly quality to Howard. Well, Hughes. I think it's the fact that you know if you were to look at it from an autobiographical standpoint, you could say that it's the beginning and the end of Warren Beatty's career. In right. A way. Uh, in that the Alden Ehrenreich character Frank is is essentially a young Warren Beatty, but without the desire to act, who's a young young religious guy because Warren Beatty was mm-hmm. religious uh, and uh, who who came to L.A. and uh, found that there was uh, there were things that uh, that were previously on the forbidden menu to him and that he that he quite liked and. Um, uh, and then, of course, you could look at the Howard Hughes, the reclusive character, who has this reputation as being this this quite strange, idiosyncratic guy. Which, you know, if you listen to the Warren Beatty interview, he is not. He is not that. He has not lived his life like a recluse. He's been raising kids for the last eighteen right. eighteen years or so. Uh, but I think it's a bit glib to read it. Read it in. Uh, read it. It's a bit pat to re- try and read it into uh, into it a little bit. Um, the 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 issue I have with this movie, and I, I think this movie is is very interesting, is that it's two movies in one, and one movie is very very good, the other one is not that great, didn't isn't as compelling as I would want it to be, and that's the central love story between between Alden Ehrenreich's Frank and uh, Lily Collins' Marla, which uh, is, it, they're fine and they look great and they have nice chemistry together, uh, but it doesn't quite pop for me the way that it perhaps should have done. Uh, meanwhile, all the interesting stuff's happening with Howard Hughes. Uh, which is a, which is a very very good performance from from Warren Beatty and uh, there's some really interesting print the legend stuff going on that you know about you know how just weird and idiosyncratic and uh, he was and he was a man who was aware that he was perhaps losing his his grip on on his sanity a little bit and uh, was trying desperately to uh, to dig himself in and mm-hmm. surround himself with uh, with yes people on all sides. 
some decent performances as well. It's got an interesting cast. Uh, Amazing just, cast. I mean, people just turn up in this movie. Every, yeah. every five minutes, you're going, what, another one? Alec Baldwin just pops in for five yeah. minutes. The know? link, the Fenn diagram of the aviator and the rules yeah. don't apply uh, is has Alec Baldwin right slap bang in the middle. <laughs> I wish he'd played the same character in both, but he, he doesn't. Uh, and then you have, like, Steve Coogan turns up towards the end right. for, a, for a, is that Steve Coogan cameo? And yes, it is. Candace Bergen's in the film. Matthew Broderick's very good in the film. Annette Benning, uh, obviously. Paul Servino, who I haven't seen in, this, in a film for years, right. is in this movie and gets nothing to do. <laughs> I get the impression there's a much, much longer cut of this film, and I, uh, that's probably about three, three and a half hours. We let both stories breathe, and that would probably be a, be a lot better, but maybe commercial pressures. Who knew, Who knows? I've, I felt like I was just confused that he felt he needed the... Um the romantic sort of young person's story at all. I think Howard Hughes is such a fascinating character and has so many strange uh, sort of nooks and crannies of his life yeah. that, you know, a whole film about him, I, I would be fascinated to watch in itself. I don't think you need that extra level. Uh, yeah, and uh, did I bring that, did I talk, tackle it with him? I don't know. Uh, if we did, uh, I don't think he answered it in that, that directly. Uh, but so yeah. I, I agree with you. I'm certainly again. We talk about you know commercial pressures. Warren Beatty's been away as a director for a long, long time. Bullworth, his last movie, didn't do that well either. And maybe you come back and you think, well, I'm I'm 80 years old and I've been away for a while. And yes, I'm Warren Beatty. But does that mean people will come and sit and see a film that I'm in? Ah, but what if I center it around these two young bucks? Maybe then it'll be a hit. Uh, which yeah. of, which of course it. Well, Howard Hughes is just such a fascinating character. I, yeah. It, I haven't seen Rules Don't Apply but I do wish it had been about him mm. there are a bunch of films where Howard Hughes is kind of a supporting character but he's so colourful and he's in the I just remembered he's in The Rocketeer played by Terry O'Quinn from Lost oh yes <laughs> of course um, of although course. The Rocketeer is awesome so I'm happy with that in this case but uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I liked I liked a lot of this film, but uh, we've given it two stars, and I can see why we gave it two stars. But uh, uh, but yeah, it's it's certainly who knows maybe a three three and a half hour director's cut in a couple of years time uh, would be very interesting to watch indeed. Uh, also out this week we have the Belko experiment, which is a a action horror siege type thing written and produced by James Gunn, uh, and it is about a group of American employees in a an American branch of a firm in Bogota, Colombia, who get locked in their building and told by a disembodied voice that they have to turn on each other, they have to kill each other in order to stay alive, or they will all be killed by a chip that's been implanted in their heads that will blow up their heads. Yes, it's Battle Royale. Yes, very much Battle Royale. Yes, it's Hunger Games. Uh, I really like the first half of this movie uh, until until it becomes a little bit more straight-laced uh, and perhaps lacks, lacks some quirks and some humour and some surprises in the second half, which becomes a bit grueling and, and gore-tastic. If you like that sort of thing, which I do, it's fine. If you don't, you may find this a bit of a, a, a drudgery. Um, so three stars for the Belco experiment. Three stars also for Jessica Chastain uh, and Nico Caro's The Zookeeper's Wife. Uh, four stars for the horror film that none of us have seen, sadly, The Transfiguration, which sounds really interesting. And two stars for Catherine Heigl's return to the big screen in Unforgettable. Two stars for Catherine Heigl's return to the big screen in Unforgettable. Two stars for... Uh, and that is it for this week's Emperor Podcast. Uh, please, please vote for us. Why wouldn't you? After that link in the uh, in the British Podcast Awards Listeners Choice Awards, uh, they are I think voting finishes next week. So get those fingers clicking, people, uh, and do listen now for the Warren Beatty special, the interview special, which is out now. And join us next week for more film-related fun, where we'll be joined by Neil Gaiman, the genius behind 
American gods. Until then, it is goodbye from John. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Nick. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to watch Fast and Furious 8 with John Fergo. It's it's going to be quite a grueling grind. There's a lot of bald men in that movie. He's going to be really confused. Where's the cue ball going? Well, he's, 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 he's going to New York. Where's the cue ball going? He's going to New York as well. John, John, oh, for the love of God. I think our award chances have just... <laughs> Uh, yeah, congratulations to Wittertainment on winning <laughs> the Listener's Choice Award. Uh, thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye.